to episode five of the third power. That's right, we finally made it to episode number five. Yeah, baby. Woo! I hope you've all had a good time at the pre-release, you know, able to pick up some cube cards on the cheap, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. Or you might have just won and won packs or opened a sweet pool like mine that was actually worth the $25 I paid for it. Oh, wow. See, I opened like nothing. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> on this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, about how to evaluate cards for cube. And this is a pretty long, in-depth topic. We might even revisit it in a future episode. But, yeah, this is definitely something that we're going to dive deep into for this episode. Absolutely. And it's, and it's something that's really topical right now because of a new set coming out. This is a perfect time to use those card evaluation skills, not only for new cards, but also to see how uh, current cards you may or may not have in the cube interact with these new cards, whether they're, they're better, worse, good enough, bad enough, you know. Just, just a great time to be talking about this. Yeah, it's definitely the perfect time to talk about it because a lot of people, a lot of these cards, we don't have people like uh, you know Chapin, you know Conley having like real world experience. Even their experience is mostly just theoretical at this point. And so we'll talk about how to evaluate these cards to put in your cube because definitely, as we talked about, Mirrodin Besiege has a good amount of good cards for your cube. A tool that a lot of people use to evaluate cards is to look to other formats, like, you know, looking at how a card did at the pre-release or how it is in Standard or Vintage or EDH, you know, stuff like that. It's not perfect. You know, it's not, you know, there's definite pitfalls with that method, but it's a useful tool. And, you know, we'll definitely discuss how to use that tool efficiently. Yeah, for sure, because, you know, if a card is good in, in a lot of other formats, it's probably something that, you know, you at least want to use some sort of, burn some mental calories on on trying to figure out whether or not it's good in the cube. Personally, for me, I think a, a very good tool for, for new cube designers or for people looking for new cards in general, maybe who haven't been playing very long, is to kind of take a historical look and see what cards were good across multiple formats. If you're old enough like me, you've kind of played, you know, the draft format and the standard from different ones. But if you're kind of new, you can go, you know, online and, and do some searching and find out uh, what decks were really popular at the time, what decks went across formats, and get an idea of, of where you should be starting. I think a lot of people... I've heard a couple different opinions on this, Usman. I've heard some people say, well, you know, this card was good in this format, so of course it's good in cube. And I've also heard people say, well, you know what? Just because that card was good in that format has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not it's good in the cube. And mm -hmm. I don't agree with either of those. I think it's somewhere in the middle. What about you? I was about you? to say, it's, uh, it's, both of those are pretty much extremes. And like usual, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Like, I definitely think there is some form of, uh, you know, if a card is good, you have to understand what makes it good. You, some people, if they were to just auto say, like, you know, hey, I played this card the pre-release and it was, it was a bomb. Wow, it was nuts. And, you know, automatically think that this card has to be good in cube. And that's not necessarily right either. But for the most part, there's also reasons why, you know, a card would be good in a certain format, like, uh, Crystal Ball was a card that I was kind of down on at first. I was like, well, you don't get to draw the card immediately, you know, whatever. This card seems really meh. But when I started seeing more experience, mainly from people at the pre-release, definitely gave it more of a shot. I think that you have to understand what makes the card good and not just simply auto-go. Just go, this card was great in format X, it's good in cube, 
Instead, you should be thinking card X is good in format Y, so there's a good chance for it to be good in cube. Or, you know, it's, it's worth, like you said, some mental calories, calories to look at and, you know, to evaluate, you know, just to, to, you know, think about it more and not just go, oh, this card is uh, good in the EDH, you know, windmill slam it in my cube and not even think about it kind of thing. Sure, and you can look at it, you know, like I said, I think a good indicator is if a card was good in, in multiple formats, it's probably in the dark, I think it's okay as a, as a starting place for inclusion in your cube. I mean, there are definitely exceptions to that rule, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. But let's take a card, for example, uh, like Psychotog. Psychotog was very, very good in the draft format. It was obviously spawned an entire deck in standard. It was a major player and extended for a long time. It even saw some legacy and vintage play whether in control decks or berserk versions. So a card like that that's good across all these other formats, if you were to just, even if you don't want to spend any sort of mental calories, if you just want to want to put it in your cube and see how it runs, I think I'm okay with that for the most part. I think the part where you have to be careful about that is when those cards are part of a a linear mechanic, something like Madness, Affinity, a combo deck like a Storm deck, uh, the tribal decks of Lorwyn, I think those cards require a little more thought. I think a good example of that we were talking about before the show here was the Madness decks. Now, the Madness decks were a major player in Standard while they were there. They were a major player in Extended. And there are two very similar cards in there in both Wild Mongrel and Aquamoeba. One of cards, very good for Cube. The other one, not so much. And even still, like, while, yeah, Wild Mongrel made a huge impact in, like, Standard, you know, environments like that, you know, just like standard extended. For like for a long time, people, you know, before probably Goyf, people were saying that Mongrel was the best two drop in in Green's history, kind of thing. I mean, best two drop. You could you could discuss pe- best two drop ever, regardless of color. Yeah, it was. I think people were saying yeah, it was the best two drop of all time. Props to Kanye, kind of thing. Right. But yeah, it was definitely an example where where something like Wild Mongrel has the ability, like, sure, it's, it enabled Madness, and in draft it enabled, like, it helped Threshold, uh, you know, help Madness kind of thing, and where on it, even its base, like, even without those kinds of shenanigans, you know, even with, if you can't, if you don't play it in, like, Reanimator, for example, still a 2-2, still bashes for a ton, still fits green aggro really well kind of thing, whereas... Still turns cards you don't need into miniature or giant growths. Yeah, like your opponent's gonna, they have a 3-3, three, three. it's like, okay, how am I gonna block this thing? Whereas something like Aquamoeba, you know, it doesn't really fit blue strategy very well, it's not very efficient for blue strategies, and isn't, you know, the greatest attacker in the world, or blocker really. You know, it's just really good in draft, because of stuff like Threshold, Madness, etc., and the Madness deck. And that's right, I it. think it was reliant on other things to make it good where Wild Mongrel definitely stands on its own a bit more while having the bonus of being good in other things. You know, you also get to shut off things like Terror with an extra card, mm-hmm. you know. So I think there's reactions there. A, a tribal example would be uh, Siege Gang Commander. Siege Gang Commander, obviously cornerstone of the Goblin deck, but you know what? In Cube, still very good because you get five power, you get an activated ability that gives you reach, which is what red decks want, obviously, and, you know, as opposed to something like Goblin Ringleader, which just as sick in goblins, but, you know, 
Not so much in cube when you don't have, you know, when your deck doesn't contain 33, you know, goblin cards. Yeah, precisely. Cards like that, which are, re- like, really reliant on others, those really linear cards, they just don't have the support in cube. And you have to understand that when you're looking at what made a card good in its format. Like, Ringleader, great, because it's going to draw you, what, two, three, it's going to draw you, like, three cards, three goblins or something like that, two or yeah, three it goblins. Winds, it, it usually winds up being between two and three on average. Yeah, and that's solid, like, but in cube, that's never going to happen. You're going to maybe, you're going to have, like, what, four or five goblins at the most? If yeah, you unless really, really push try. the whole, right, unless you push the whole tribal thing, then obviously you want to include it if red is your goblin tribe. But, you know, just having it just by itself, yeah, not not so much, not so yeah, much. He, yeah, I was going to say, he's not going to go the distance with the goblins, but Siege Yang, definitely, your five power, can chuck him off the opponent's head, even without any other goblins in your deck then it's great. But if you have other goblins, then it's even better. If you have random random welder, random ruin blaster, mirror entity, stuff like that, then it's even better. But at its worst, even without explicit support, the card is just rock solid. Yeah, absolutely. Like storm cards, you know, things like that, uh, like storm or combo cards, yeah, these cards see play across multiple formats. But I think, you know, even though, you know, cards like Mind's Desire, Mind's Desire or things like that, don't you know? It's really hard to build around a card like that in cube. I know some people like it, but you know you can still find useful cards in those things like demonic tutor, vampiric tutor, you know all that kind of stuff. Or maybe if you have a multiplayer uh, cube, uh, maybe you can definitely do some storm shenanigans. I remember back in Time Spiral 2HG, there was the one storm card that was six mana destroy a land. Oh you spend yeah! Spend all your spells to make sure they all come off at the same time and you basically wind up eliminating one person from the game. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of those, but you can still find the tutors in there. Or even something like Affinity. I mean, all the Affinity cards require them playing with each other. But, you know, Affinity still had Skull Clamp. Yeah. Which is a card that, hello, played across multiple formats, banned across multiple formats. Probably should include this one. This one's probably a pretty safe safe inclusion. I was about to say, pretty much anything with creatures, like even Elf and Nail was happy to play Clamp, you know, every, anything. Oh. But yeah, everything oh. else in the deck was just so linear. It was like, I remember looking at the uh, Affinity deck for examples, and all of them are just garbage outside of the archetype. You know, like Ravager, Atog, Arcbound, whatever, Worker, and whatever. Everything else was just garbage. And yeah, Ornithopter, Durf. Yeah, exactly. Get in there, O2. It totally will get in there. Dude, but we yeah. get to attack for two when they play their Doran, the Siege Tower. Oh, yeah, there we go. Thanks for the 2-2 two, two flyer for nothing. See, there we go. That's how you got to roll. Right, yeah. <clears throat> and, yeah. you know, the, and as far as other formats go, too, if you guys out there have a multiplayer cube, by all means, go ahead and look towards something like EDH as a format, because multiplayer games in general are going to last a little bit longer, and you can really look there at, at that format, and, and since it is a singleton format, too. It makes it even a little more similar for, for cards that are very good. For example, cards that I see in EDH all the time that I would, wouldn't be caught dead with in my cube. Things like, uh, Luminarch Ascension, uh, Mind's Eye, uh, Ristic, Ristic Study. Study, you know, stuff like that, uh, Lurking Predators or whatever that green card is. Stuff like that, you know, I, I think you can definitely look, look towards. But you really have to, you know, get an understanding, like you said, of of why that card is good in a format. Precisely. Like uh, an example that I I use in a regular draft, 
there's a card called like Weed Strangle, but there's you know like five mana sorcery speed removal. But I guess a better or at least more recent analog is uh, Spread the Sickness from Mirrodin Besieged. Like it's it's something I'm very happy to play in draft or you know sealed or you know general limited because you know it's five mana, it's removal, and for the standard uh, limited environment, it's an effect that is quote unquote on curve. You know that's I'm happy to pay five mana for removal, but if someone were to automatically think that this card is good in draft, therefore it's good in cube, if they were to play like a weed strangle in their commons cube, for example, even in commons, five mana is way too much. It's way under the curve for removal effect. Like you should you be way paying... over the curve, right? Yeah, way over the yeah, sorry, way over the curve. Because it's just terrible. Like I'm not paying two I'm not paying five mana for removal in my commons cube. I'm paying two. Right. And so if I'm paying, like, three-plus, remo- you know, for some kind of removal spell, it had better be really good. Like, go to the face or, you know, be some kind of multiple, you know. Vindicate, Maelstrom Pulse, you know, things of that nature that are just super powerful for, you know, the extra mana. Yeah, precisely. And uh it was one of those things, like, in some commons cubes that I saw. I don't know if necessarily Adams was one of those. I think, it yeah, it was. But there was some other commons cube that I remember seeing back in the day where... He assumed that, you know, pingers like Prodigal Sorcerer, Prodigal Pyromancer, you know, like the Brimstone Mage, even though it's an uncommon, but, you know, the same kind of creatures, the pingers, uh-huh. assumed that those were good because they were windmill slams in draft. Like, you don't pass a Prodigal Sorcerer in, uh, in Time Spiral or even Pirate Ship because it was so good. It was. Yeah, know, I remember just a recent, uh, like a triple M11 draft I did. I had like a, a 4X Prodigal Pyromancer deck. Oh, I was wow. like, I can't possibly lose with this deck. Like, what are people doing at this table? Yeah. God, that's nuts. Jeez. But, yeah, it's like both uh, Adam and that uh, other guy, they automatically assumed that because pingers were good in draft, they were good in commons. But that's not the case because those are effects that are over the curve. Removal costs is good at five mana in a generic draft environment, but three is just kind of meh. I mean, you have the repeatable effect. You can, you know, ping random stuff. But that doesn't really matter because that's overcosted for removal. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing with like, uh, uh, makes me think of other effects, which is kind of the opposite, where people have an idealized image in their head of how the card was, and because it isn't like that, they end up being disappointed. The, the best example that I can think of is, uh, Mog Fanatic. You know, people played it in their cubes until M10 hit. And, you know, when damage on the stack went away, and then people, you know, some people were just like, OMG, this card is terrible. And this isn't just in terms of cube. People in general were just like, this card is awful. OMG, this card is garbage. You know, where people were thinking of the card, you know, in terms of this card is really great, but it lost, you know, it lost some form of utility, and that makes it bad without thinking of what was lost. Like, for example, it can't trade with X2s anymore, or it can't block, and then sacrifice itself to hit birds of paradise in the air yeah it can't do that but is that enough to make it like omfg garbage no that's you know that's just really not thinking critically about how the card actually plays out right they just need to look at what the card actually does and not base it off of how it plays necessarily in other formats or how and when i say other formats i mean other functionality you know it's instead of being like man this card is so much worse you just need to look at it now, just look at it again and say, do I play this card? You know, find some way to be unbiased about it and say, do I play a 1-1 one, one for 1 
that I can sacrifice to do one damage to any target? And the answer is yes. It's just that, you know, I think people were disappointed with how it performed. Uh, I was going to suggest, even though I don't necessarily, uh, like the card a ton, but I think it's, I think it's just fine, is, uh, step links. Yeah. You know, when you're playing it in, in type two or constructed or, or zoo or whatever that might be, you're going to have, you know, 10 to 12 fetch lands in your deck. So you're going to have a lot of attacks for four. Obviously that's not going to happen in cube. But if you look at it separately, if you get maybe an attack for four in once in a while, but you have to consider is a two, three attacker for most, for a lot of turns, is that good enough for you? Or a two, three attacker for the first three, four turns? And if, if that answer is yes, then that's a card you need to be playing instead of saying, Oh, it's never a four or five. It's, you know, it doesn't do what it, you know, when I played my Boros deck and won that big FNM, I really like this card, but since it won't be able to attack for four for six straight turns, like how I won my, the tournament, yeah. <laughs> and it's not good enough for cube. It's like, all right, you know, slow your roll a little bit and just just kind of think about what the what the card does in the cube instead of you know necessarily comparing comparing it to what it did in other formats. But I, I agree that Mog Fanatic is the best example of that. Yeah, that's why I ended up going to that example. I was like, I think Mog Fanatic's the big example, and you know, stuff like uh, a card that I think did lose a good amount of functionality was Momentary Blink, because a, a lot of the time it was damage on, play Blink, to, you know, make sure that my 2-2 trades with your 2-2 turns into a trade, becomes a benefit, you know, I have an alive 2-2, and I have the flashback for whatever. Like, that was the case where a good amount of the card's functionality did go away. And you have to really consider, in these kinds of cases, where how much, how similarly is a card at its core going to play? What? How is overall the card going to play in your cube? Sure. And, you know, and I still like I still like me a momentary blank because of the... I, I, I just prefer to have action cards, tricky cards, when I'm playing those kind of those kind of decks. And, you know, and we all like to abuse coming to play effects in the cube, and especially in those colors, you know, there's there's lots of things you can be blinking for, for uh, profit. But, you know, it's... I, I like playing games, personally, I just like playing games of Magic where it's not just, play creature, attack yeah, for two. <laughs> play creature, attack you for two. Mm-hmm. Okay, play creature, attack for four. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of like uh, a little bit of trickiness every once in a while to, to try to mix it up. And, I, I, you know, so I still like the card, but it definitely did lose a significant amount of, of its allure without damage on the stack. I, I agree with you there. And uh, there was one more point that uh, I just kind of thought of, is that you should, for example, when you're thinking of cards in your cube, not to be overly reliant on mental shortcuts. Like, for example, one, you know, the, you know something they went over on limited resources was the, the bread anal- uh, anagram that a lot of people use when they start drafting. Like, you know, the bombs removal, evasion, whatever, whatever, like that nobody uh-huh. can agree on. Like, aggression, dregs, whatever stupid stuff that nobody knows what it means because it's completely worthless. For example, someone might automatically think, you know, five mana, we'd strangle, good. But another thing is that, for example, people, like one of those things you're taught when you're starting to draft is that one drops are terrible in draft because, and people just auto-assume, it's like, oh, it's a one drop, it sucks in draft. But they don't remember why for the most part. It's like because one mana, one ones for the most part, don't have an effect on the board state for the most uh-huh. part. They're just like Ication Javelineers maybe or, you know, just like a 
a terrible 1-1 flyer for one, like a Suntail Hawk or something. It's not going to have that much board impact, but that assumption does not hold in cube. Like, that's not going to apply to a Mog Fanatic, Wild Dogs, Isamaru, Elite Vanguard, stuff like that. And also because your cube should have the app support for those one-drops yep. to make aggro viable. And, and, if, and if there are people out there talking about the mental shortcutting real quick, um, if you guys haven't read Gavin Verhey's article... Uh, from last week on Star City about, I think the title of it was How to Jump Off Niagara Falls and Live. Basically talks about falling into those, those mental shortcutting mistakes and basically how to combat those. It's a very good read. You guys should, uh, definitely check it out. If yeah, you, you linked, it. yeah, you linked it to me a couple of days ago and I was like, this is brilliant. Like, this is yeah, we'll, article. we'll, we'll drop that link into the, uh, into the, uh, show notes for sure. Yeah, that's, that's definitely going in the show notes. And for the most part, the cards you talk about have been pretty easy to evaluate, you know, just like, you know, Mog Fanatic, good, play it, you know, bash, put you, again, wear equipment, whatever. But there are some other cards that require support and therefore require a little bit more thought. Okay, one like, ex- uh, which one? One of the, the best example that I can think of is, uh, your good buddy, Stoneforge Mystic. Yeah, Stoneforge Mystic. Yeah, get there. Like, at first, when I saw the card, I was like, man, this card's like a barely better squire, you know, one two. And I've, you know, I've said this example plenty of times, but I'll go through it again. You know, it's like, oh no, it's a one two, it's a squire, and you know, you have your equipment, and if you already drew it, then it's a terrible squire, and you know, you're not gonna have the toolbox kind of thing, and it sucks. It makes no sense. Why would you play it? This card sucks. Yeah, and when I first looked at it, you know, the first thing I thought of is, huh. You get to go tutor up an equipment with this. I didn't even really consider the the activated ability, just the trigger. And the first thing that occurred to me is, huh, what's better than one Umazawa's Jit? Two Umazawa's Jit, obviously. So it, it seemed to me to be uh, just a, a, a slam dunk inclusion. However, you're not going to play this card if you're not playing a significant number of equipments in your in your in your cube. Yeah, I would definitely like. I did some math for my cube when I decided to put it in, or at least to try it. And one of those things I thought of was I have 10 equipment, I believe it was 10 equipment at the time, in my 450-card cube, which uh-huh. is roughly one equipment per draft set, you know, 45 cards, and realized, you know, you're probably going to get at least one equipment in your deck. If not, you know, that should be easy. But, you know, getting, you know, like two shouldn't be too hard. And, you know, just like a GTA and a stone forge is fine, but I don't know, like, I was like, you know, at the time, a lot of the decks that used stone forge were playing it because of the toolbox, because if you had, like, the basilisk collar, sure. the, the sledge and whatnot, and I was like, well, this card isn't very good without the toolbox, so I want to make sure people can draft the toolbox. So I tr- put it in my cube and tried it, and as it turns out, the toolbox happened. You know, there was plenty of times when the first time I think I put it in, somebody drafted uh, stone forge with three equipment. And yeah, I was like, well, and, there we go. Yeah, there Yeah, and it's and it's and the thing is too is you're still left with a significant I mean, the body isn't insignificant. You can still attack, you know, if you have nothing else, you can still attack with it with an Umazawa's Jit on and start the uh start the party. It's yeah. not like a, a an an O2 or something like that. The other thing too is I think the the triggered ability against control decks is something or the activated ability rather is something that's kind of overlooked. Now this, uh, people who might have played, uh, extended last season, not this current season, definitely know that, you know, when you tutor up your Umazawa's Jit or you tutor up your, uh, equipment, you never just play it if they have mana up because you're just gonna spell snare it. 
So what you do is you just wait an extra turn and just drop it directly into play, completely circumventing uh, their counter magic. Yeah, so and I think even that's, like that's uh, consider as well, especially if you have that super important sort of fire and ice <clears throat> that you absolutely want to get into play. You know what? You don't need to drop it right now. Just wait a turn. You know, there's no reason to expose it. It's it it does a really good job of playing around that as well. It also gets around like the cheap, like the cost reduction is pretty nice for like the swords, but especially bone horde. Like, dropping it from 4 to 2 is quite nice. Oh, for sure, and especially if, you know, the, obviously the dream is <clears throat> you Stoneforge Mysticking up another piece of equipment with your Bone Horde in hand, and then being like, well, all they have is, you know, a random sword that's not my colors, I'll attack. You're like, by the way, nice Bone Horde, kill your yeah. guy, <laughs> thanks for playing. You know, that's obviously the, the dream, and that's not something we want to look at for, you know, card evaluation purposes, but... You know, it, it's it's one of those things where if you draft equipment in your deck, you want to draw it. You're playing, most likely you're playing an aggressive deck. You want at some point in the game to have that card on the board. So why not play an effective extra copy of it? The extended deck, not the extended deck, the legacy deck that I played uh, and punted in the top eight over at the uh, Invitational was the, the Ooze Survival deck. And the deck was just absurd because you had 12 survivals. You had your four survivals, you had four fauna shamans, and you had four enlightened tutors. And I just felt like I couldn't ever lose a game having that many copies of the thing that I wanted to do. So, I, wow, I, yeah. you know, and I think Stoneforge Mystic falls in the same thing. You know what? Yeah, maybe there's times where you draft it and you don't get past any other equipment. But big deal. It's one card. You take it out. But if all you get is one sword or one jit... I'm playing it. And it's it's about kind of like looking at, uh, in terms of the cards that require support, like thinking in the overall range of how the card's going to play. Like, yeah, there's going to be times when you draft it and you get no equipment, and that sucks. Or you might just get a bone splitter or something. And it's like, meh, you know, it's not going to work out. But you have to realize the range of the effect of the card. You know, like how often am I getting the, the one equipment? How often am I getting the two equipment with it? And things like that. Or, like, uh, another example is uh, something like Green Sun Zenith, which is all theoretical at this point because I haven't really had much of a chance to test it, is how often are you getting the deck with the Primus, the Terracidon, the Simic Sky Swallower, the stuff like that, versus the times when it's you don't get it and you're just kind of playing it in a kind of mid-range shell without something to ramp into or something. It's all right. about just evaluating stuff like that. Uh, but, in terms of... And there was a... Something that I was thinking of uh, what we were talking about was evaluating a card. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about card evaluation using card examples. You know, just as kind of like uh, a way to look at it differently. And the first one is a Hokori Dust Drinker, which for those who are playing along is two and two white for a two-two with essentially Winter Orb effect. Lands don't untap during your untap phase, and I think it's like during your upkeep you untap one land or something. Yep. Well, I, I, I feel like this is a card that a lot of people, evaluations are uh, a little bit off on it. I think people tend to look at a card in very black and white terms. And, and I think what the first thing people look at is, I'm spending four mana, and all I'm getting is a 2-2. And all they're going to do is they're just going to kill it, and they're going to trade their, you know, their lightning bolt for my four mana spell, and it's awful. But forget to look at the fact that this is a this is a card that you want to be playing. Likely you're going to be playing some other drops first. You're going to have some other creatures on the board. 
And you want to drop this card when they tap out or very close to it to try to do something to, to put themselves in a position to catch up. And immediately you tie up all their mana. And your remaining guys and your Hikori are there to clean up because that 2-2 body is something you want to be beating with them. You know, you don't want to give them time to draw out of it. You want to play this card, and the 2-2 body is actually helping you to win the game and do what you're supposed to be doing. Would I rather have a Winter Orb? Yeah, ostensibly Winter Orb is just a better card. It's only two mana. It's a little harder to remove. You get to cast some other spells. But you know what? I am not going to complain at having a 2-2 body strapped to a Winter Orb. And if you think about it cost-wise, that's about right. Two mana for a bear, two mana for a Winter Orb. Seems just about right to me. I'll play as many Winter Orbs as possible in my aggressive decks, that's for sure. Well, something that we were talking about with regards to Hikori was, you know, how positive are positives and, like, how negative are negatives kind of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, even cards... Think what's a card one of the best enter the battlefield triggers is probably Flame Tongue Kavu, right? Yeah. I mean the card's insane. It was obviously not you know, something went wrong in design, it wasn't supposed to do four damage and be a four two. But the thing is is, you know, that card is for the most part I mean obviously you always want that card, card's awesome, but there are still times when that card is not what you want. There are times where you are the aggressive deck, they've dealt with all but one of your other creatures, or not even that and you don't have a target. You have this, you have this flame tongue combo in hand. You have this four power creature and you want to be attacking with it. But if you play it, it means you're going to kill one of your own creatures or possibly itself if that's the last creature. So even the most positive aspect of a card still can be a liability at times. And this is actually a reason why I wound up taking out Fire Imp out of my cube for a while is because every time I played the card, it was the last creature in my hand. They never played an X2. They never gave me an opportunity to trade it. They entered the battlefield ability for something. And it just wound up being, for being a very positive-looking card, wound up being negative all the time. And I feel like Hikori, while, yes, there are times where you're going to play it, here's my four drop, and they're just going to untap and kill it, or they're going to wait until your upkeep is over so you don't get to untap your lands and kill it. The thing is, yeah, that's probably the worst-case scenario. But one, you shouldn't be playing it when your opponent has a bunch of mana untapped anyway. All right, I'm going to tap out all my mana and play Hikori and tie up my own lands. You only get to cast one more spell. I hope it's good. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's not a moment when you want to be playing it. But, you know, it also, you know, it depends on the fact that, you know, they're going to need a land, likely, if two mana is our threshold for removal, um, our, our on-curve for removal, then they're going to have to have a land in hand and the removal spell that they haven't already used on your other drops. So let's take, you know, looking at it that way, and it's something that can tie up their mana for the rest of the game, the the positive aspect of it is significantly higher, I think, than the negative aspect of it, if we want to look at pure positives and pure negatives, I think. But, but even still, like, uh, the point that was that the fact that Hakori is a 2-2, while it can be seen as being a negative because it can be bolted or swords or whatever... You can beat with it! Yeah. That's the whole point, is that you can attack with it and, you know, get your game plan done still. You know, it helps that plan. It helps you win the game in multiple different ways. One, by tying up their mana, and two, by still attacking them. Like, you can't attack with your Winter Orb, at least without some help, you know? Yeah. And that's and that's kind of like evaluating, like, what deck is going to play this. Like, you know, Boros, Aggro... You know, you're gonna want to attack with your creatures. You know, you just want to get in there with as many dudes as possible, and it may be seen as a liability. You know, how negative 
is the negative, quote unquote, that it's a dude versus the negative or, you know, versus the positive benefits. And even something where just doing an overall analysis of how a card's effect is and looking at whether how it plays in the archetype and how maybe a negative that you think is actually a positive kind of thing. Sure. I mean, this is not a card you're going to be playing. You're not going to look at this card and say, that's terrible. Why would I play that in my blue-white control deck? This card sucks. Yeah, exactly. It's like, if you're playing it in blue-white control, that's just horrible. Or if you, like, play Bob in a control deck or something, and you reveal, like, Nickel Bolas or something, it's like, oh, this card's terrible. I took 14 from it. It's like, well, don't play it in control. Like, that's terrible. That's <laughs> that's just misplaying the card. Yeah, like, last time I checked, I... You know, a, a top deck in standard was just fine with taking eight off of hit and run when you reveal it to Bob. Because yeah. you know why? You drew another card, and that card helped you towards your plan. So people definitely, you definitely need to look at it and, and what it's going to be good in. You don't need to, you know, you need to think about that a little bit too, not just. You can't look at the card in a vacuum and be like, well, if I cast this card, I don't get to untap my lands. Why would I not want to untap my lands? It's like, well, your opponent doesn't want to untap lands either, and and he helps you end the game faster when he's when he's in there. So, and and I think something we should we should talk about since we're talking about Hikori and and creatures is we want to talk about how valuable is having an effect strapped onto a creature. Basically, what's the additional matter you'd be willing to pay for it? Um, I think a perfect example of this, even down to the exact mana cost, is Mystic Snake. Mystic Snake is a grizzly bears plus a counterspell. And it's exactly what the cost of the card is. Grizzly bears plus, you know, counterspell. And I don't know about you, but I'm perfectly okay with that. Yeah. Totally I love mean, Mystic Snake. That card is ridiculous. Exactly. So I think you need to look and see what it is that you're paying for and what you're getting. Um, I think the beyond Mystic Snake, I think an even better example is Eternal Witness. Oh, um, God, yeah. As we know, regrowth costs one and a green. Get any card back. That's got it attached on there. So what's left over? A green mana. And for that extra green mana, we get a 2-1. That seems pretty good to me as far as, uh, as far as things go. That's not even including the fact that you can play, you know, blink abilities with it, you know, all the shenanigans of removing it and having like, it come back and, you know, all that. Reanimator kind of thing. Reanimator. I mean, Evoking a Revel Arc, you know. <laughs> there's wow. all kinds of, of dirty stuff you can do with uh, with an Eternal Witness. Yeah, you had another example too. You said just recently uh, with a, what was it, Core Sanctifiers? Yeah, it was. You know, I remember like there was somebody who was really negative, kind of a jerk, who was drafting my cube some time ago. He'd always complain, and he was looking at Core Sanctifiers like Core Sanctifiers sucks. It's a four mana disenchant, and that's just really bad card evaluation. Because if I was paying literally four mana for a disenchant, I would be an idiot to play it because that card is terrible. But the fact is, it isn't a four. It isn't just a four mana disenchant. You're getting a two three attached to it. You know, it's, it's sorcery speed, so that analog isn't like super perfect. But you know, you're getting four mana for a two three creature with a disenchant attached to it. Well, the other thing, too, is it also affords you a little bit of flexibility. If you just need a body, it's a 2-3 three for 3. Yeah, you got a blind phantasm, and yeah, if, or if you have, you know, like, equipment or O-rings or whatever, and you don't want to kick it, you don't have to. Even if you have, like, infi mana, it's just like, I don't want to kick it. 
and there's that definite flexibility. I think there's there's definitely a kind of an inherent card advantage to having an effect strapped onto an effect strapped onto a creature or a spell with dual modes where it does two things. Like Bone Shredder, you know, someone might think that it's a three mana terror or something. Like, yeah, this card ain't good, but you know, it's it's the the entire package is what you're paying for, and it's very solid. Yep, I completely agree. I mean, uh, or a card, you know, speaking of, of these other cards, something that recently came up was, is it Ravenous Baboons? Is that the name of the card? Yeah, Ravenous Baboons. That it's uh, three and a red for a 2-2, two, two, and when it comes into play, you blow up a non-basic land. And, and you have to look at it, and you, you know, you have to evaluate that card separately and think, okay, is a four-mana land destruction spell that only hits non-basic lands, is this good enough? Well, no, not by itself. Um, you have to look at the entire package, though. Well, is this good enough with a 2-2 body attached as well? Um, we know that a 1-1 body isn't good enough because yeah, that card's of, uh, already existed. Yeah, Starter 99's Goblin Settler. Yeah, nice Goblin Settler. look that settler. up on Gatherer. That's <laughs> obscure. Ugh. I mean, yeah. that card is just terrible because the 1-1 isn't quite worth it. Now, the, at least the 2-2 is a, is, is a little more... A little closer, I think, to what you want to be doing because you do get some interactions with with blink uh, and other effects of that nature. Um, but you know, that's you have to look at it all together. Is this something you're willing to pay for to get rid of a a non basic land? Yeah. And you know, for some people, maybe it is. Uh, for me, it's not. I don't particularly like the card very much. I don't know. It's just not for me. I, yeah. I, I'm I'm not buying it, especially since a lot of people are taking blink out. Because of the changes, the rules changes, I just don't feel like a uh, a format of non-basic land card is good. But you know what? I love me an Avalanche Riders and a uh, Goblin Bruin Blaster. Oh, yeah, definitely. And even, like, like I play it, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with it so far. But, you know, there are times when, like, you cannot necessarily, like with Avalanche Riders or even, like, Creeping Mold, when you play it, there's always a target. Like, you're going to always have, you know, even when you play Creeping Mold and you want, you put it in your deck because, like, you want to kill, like, your like a moat or a sword or whatever, and your opponent has none of that, but you still need a dude, you can still play it, blow up a basic, and whatever, that's fine. But Right, you still have some form of pressure, as opposed to something like Creeping Mold, where, you know, once again, if we want to consider, like, the worst-case, best-case scenario, <clears throat> the worst-case scenario which I, I would imagine would happen a fair amount of time is you're just blowing up a land or a, a mana artifact. Yeah. And to me, that's not very impressive for four mana at sorcery speed. Yeah, like, like there are times, I don't know, eventually I, I'm a much bigger fan of uh, Acidic Slime, and I guess that comes back to the, uh, how much, you know, the effect strapped to a creature, because even at its worst, I can just, you know, play it as a turn, as a 2-2 and blow up a land, because there's always going to be a target for it. Well, and it's a 2-2 death touch, so, it, you know, it's actually very deadly in combat as well, which matters. Yeah, like, attack with your titan. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's definitely, if I had to, you know, gun to my head and say how much do I think the uh, incentive or how much of a discount having something strapped on something, I'd probably say one mana. Like, Mystic Snake plus, you know, being a grizzly bear or, I guess, an Ashcoat bear plus counterspell. You know, like one and a green plus double blue minus one for the uh, for the combining discount means that's a pretty good deal. 
even like something like Indrek Stompower, which is, you know, essentially, you know, it's a granted not for cube, but in terms of general design, just four and a green is essentially Durkwood Boars. Naturalize is one and a green, and you're getting, you know, however much, you know, seven mana worth of effect with Indrek Stompower for five mana, and that's solid. Right, absolutely. And like I said, you know, Mystic Snake is just, you don't get a discount for Mystic Snake. You know, it's actually just straight up. But you know what? I'm okay with that because both effects are just fine. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're not never, I'm never like, yeah, give me a Grizzly Bear, but, you know, whatever. Like, that you're getting that effect strapped on, you, know, you get those two effects strapped onto one is solid. And if, this doesn't even apply just to creatures. It applies even to spells like Dismiss, which is, you know, double blue, counterspell, or dismiss costs two and two blue, counterspell draw a card, which is kind of like if you pay two for a draw and two blue for a you know, counterspell or, you know, stuff like that where someone might look at it and be like, yeah, this, this looks okay, not that good. But, you know, the fact that you get those two effects strapped onto the fact. Right. You get, you get basically get two effects for one card. Yeah. Even like something like, uh, you know, cryptic command obviously is redonk. Just no, no doubt about that. But even, like, Arc Trail, there are times when you'll have to, like, you know, shock yourself or shock one of your dudes to dome your opponent for two. But overall, the range is very solid because you're getting the two-for-one advantage. Right. And, and this, this applies to flashback spells, too. Things like uh, Firebolt, uh, Call of the Herd, Deep Analysis, Chainer's Edict, while in and of themselves, if you just look at it, you just look at the first part of it, all right, a Sorcery Speed Shock. A 3-3 three, three token for 3, uh, draw 2 cards for 4 mana with no drawback. They're not very impressive, but combine them with the fact that you're going to get an additional use out of them. You're getting that second effect that's slightly different, but the fact that you're getting uh, a pseudo 2 for 1 or more for that makes them entirely playable. Like, obviously, you know, you're not going to look at Chainer's Edict without the flashback. They actually reprinted that. What was that called? Cruel uh, Edict. Cruel Edict. Obviously, you're not going to look at Cruel Edict and uh, the Instant Speed Edict and pick the Cruel Edict as being the better card. But when you tack a flashback on it, even though it's it's a, on the expensive side, seven mana, it still matters. Yeah. The card still matters, and it makes the card significantly better because you are getting basically two two effects for the price of one. This is why Planeswalkers are so good, because you're basically getting multiple effects out of one card. Um, you know, you're... You're, you're playing two-headed giant with a small child who only knows how to cast two or three different spells. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still, but it's still two versus one because you're, you're casting additional cards each, you're casting additional spells each turn while still only using the one card. Yeah. And like a way I looked at like the card like deep analysis, like I forget what made me think of it, but if you think about it in a certain way, it's, a, it's actually a draw three, but the fact is, is that you know, it draws you two, and then one of the spells that you draw is, like, a slightly worse Nice Whisper kind of thing. Yeah, and, you know, exactly. The card is the card's just very good. And, you know, of course, you know, you look at other interactions, too, like use with Wild Mongrel, a little bit of hedge against discard decks, because you can just dis- discard it and make up those cards later on. You know, those are all just gravy on top of it. Definitely. One of the things, like, obviously not every two-for-one is going to be great in cube, like Ember Shot. You know, it's like six and a red for a lightning bolt, which cantrips. Like, that card's just garbage. Costs way too much. Like, the overall effect, even with the cantrip, it's just over the curve, and it's well, just sure. terrible. Yeah, because we know that lightning bolt costs one red mana, 
and we know that cycling, aka your draw a card, costs two mana. So that card should be three mana. Yeah, how something much like did that. You say yeah. the card was Ember Shot. Yeah. Well, what is it like? How much does it cost? Mana oh, wise, man? six and a red. Yeah, like come on. Yeah. Ugh. Come on, no. But even still, and this is a point I also want to bring up, is that there are some effects which are just ridiculously good. Like Lightning Bolt is by far like the best burn spell ever. But even like effects like Incinerate is still really good because two mana for burn of that effect is still really solid. Even Volcanic Hammer and the Portal One Fire Ambush, they're still rock solid because their base effect is still good. I mean, granted, yeah, they're not as good. You know, the the Volcanic Hammer isn't as good as Incinerate. Incinerate isn't as good as Lightning Bolt, but all of them are rock solid because they do their job really efficiently and. All of them are under the curve. It's just that Lightning Bolt is ridiculous. Right. I mean, if you can't compare everything to Lightning Bolt because Lightning Bolt is the best at what it does. Yeah, it's like comparing, like, all, I don't know, all companies to Google or something, <laughs> something like that. Uh, another point that I wanted to bring up in terms of uh, card evaluation is, and it's something that, you know, I'm going to plug my cube SWAT analysis thing again because I just think it works, is overall the strengths and weaknesses of cards and how it can be very easy to get carried away if you just focus in on, like, the positives or negatives. And one of the examples that I can think of is this actually happened on MTG Salvation today as we're recording this, Ah. is, like, somebody was talking about whether they should use the blue-green bounce land, I think it's, like, Simic Growth Chamber or the blue-green filter land, and I have no idea what that's called, but they were (laughs) deciding, which one am I going to use? And I was like, you should use, you should probably use the bounce land, looking at the strengths and weaknesses like you know blue likes the you know essentially the free land kind of thing and it it, those decks don't necessarily have problems with their mana costs like you know you could draft a deck with like cryptic and kadama the north tree and that sucks for you but most of the time those decks don't have problems with their mana costs person said i was you know i might i don't want to use the bounce land because people in my play group you know had them destroyed and they don't, you know, they, they're really down on the bounce lands. And I'm like, if people are not saying that the bounce lands suck because they're getting them, they fear getting the card destroyed. And that's the different keyword is fear. If they fear the bounce lands getting destroyed, they're misevaluating the card. Because like 99%, you know, or at least a significant amount of time that you play it, your bounce land isn't going to be destroyed. And like Mitch Hedberg, brilliant comic rest in peace he had a joke and i don't know if i can really do the mitch hedberg voice but you know he's like you know when you see an advertisement for a casino and they have a picture of a guy winning money that's false advertising because it happens the least that's like if you're advertising a hamburger they could show a guy choking this is what happened once and that was my terrible mitch hedberg but whatever ah. yeah but you know it's just like if you're if you're if you're living in fear of this one incident that happened, that happened once, like, or like, you know, Wild Dog sucks because it's, my opponent lightning bolted me and it switched. Like, yeah, that happens. But it's kind of looking at the overall effect. Like, how often is that going to happen? Like, percentage-wise? Well, how often does it matter that it happens, I think, is a, a better point. By the way, Flooded Grove. Flooded Grove is the, the land you were looking for, the, the blue-green filter. Ah, there we go. Thank you. You're but welcome. Yeah, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, sometimes you you keep that two-lander, and it's a land and a bounce land, and you play that second land, and you're like, 
man, if they wasteland me here, I'm so screwed. And you know what? Sometimes it happens, or sometimes it's your third land, and they avalanche riders you. You know, that happens sometimes. But how many of those games, even when that happens, how many of those games do you then go on to lose? I yeah. dare say the, the one where you get your second and only land, you know, blown up, I would say you lose most of those. But there are other situations, too. It's like, if I already have five lands on the table and I play a bounce land, they're like, oh, as soon as I played it, somebody blew it up. Who cares? Yeah. Like, did it really matter that much? Like, draw another land at some point. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't imagine that. I think someone even made the, the overstatement of getting a bounce land blown up is pretty much automatic good game. You can't possibly win when that happens. And it's just such a gross overstatement. I mean, my apologies to the person who made it if, if you're offended, but come on, you got to think about that. It doesn't, you know, maybe if you're, if it's your second and only two lands, maybe that is an automatic good game, but even then that's not automatic. But come on, like, it doesn't matter that much. And if it does matter that much, maybe there's other things you need to be looking at. Yeah, precisely. It's like you, like, there, you know, it's a very unfortunate thing in card evaluation and it's something very important to keep in mind is don't think in black and white. Don't think, oh, Thornling sucks, it dies to path. Like, okay, that's great. How often is that going to happen again? Like, it's, there was something, it was a, there was a class I took called like something about like decision, like decision science or something like that. Okay. Where you kind of, you kind of look at the overall outcomes and it's hard to really, I can't really quantify it in like magic, for example, like playing bounce land, like how, what are the percent that it, you know, blows up and dies and I lost percentage of times where, you know, I play it and I get another thing or whatever. And, you know, that's fine. But it's like, look at the overall utility. Like there is no black and white. And if you think in the terms of that, then you're doing a huge disservice. There are only shades of gray. Yeah, some of them are darker, some of them are lighter, but it's all the things fall somewhere in between. Yeah, you know what? We all love awesome stories. Everyone has your ridiculous beat story of how, like, what someone did to you or what you did to somebody else. Like, for example, Rite of Replication is one of these cards that just comes with all these awesome stories of, hey, you know, this one time I copied... Uh, I don't know, let's Terastodon. say Terastodon, and I blew everything up, and oh, this card's amazing, or one time I made six, you know, exalted angels, and I couldn't possibly lose, or oh man, there was this one time I made, I made five copies of the, uh, Sundering Titan, and I blew oh. up all his lands, and it was, it was awesome, like I, you know, had to, you know, walk out of the room with a pillow on my lap because it was that, it was that cool. <laughs> oh, but, geez. you know, when you, when you go, when you look at it, I don't play clone either. Yeah. A clone is something that, you know, four mana effect, a little bit easier to cast, you know, has other interactions with blinks and reanimation and stuff like that. But, you know, what sort of, if you're playing cards like that for those awesome outlier stories, what sort of awesomeness are you leaving on the bench? You know, yeah, what I mean? like I cloned a mana war because I couldn't get to nine mana or something. It's like, nah, whatever. But yeah, it's just like how much percent of the time are you hitting the nine mana for right versus the times you just cast it for four? And like in terms of overall utility, is that overall utility package worth it in your cube? For me, I'd say no. Right. Without a doubt, no. Don't don't get you know. Danger of cool things. Don't get all wrapped up in 
don't get all wrapped up in in the uh, the cool story, bro. Basically. Yeah. And uh, no. another example that I could think of in terms of just like over over exaggeration for uh, you know, over exaggerating the drawback is something like the uh, the rise of the Eldrazi levelers. So many people were down, and I'm again, I'm not just talking about cube people, but just in general. So many people were down on Dragon Lord, Cargan Dragon Lord, saying this card sucks. I invest ten mana to get a dragon, and that ten mana for a dragon sucks. And then it just dies to Bolt, or, or not Bolt, Terror, or Doomblade. And that's terrible. Why would I do that? That makes, you know, this card is terrible. But this is maybe an example where if you're, you, nobody in their right mind is going to completely put all their eggs, go all in on a dragon for 10 mana. That's not how you play the card. That's just playing the card terribly. That's incorrect. Well, the only time you do that is if that's your only play. You yeah. know, if it's, if I'm in the late game with my red deck and I, you know, I'm on an empty hand, then yeah, I'm going to play my Dragon Lord and just pump all my mana into it right away. But then they have to have the terror, or else they're Unreal dead. Yeah, and you don't just yeah. you don't just run it out there. I think Student of Warfare is another one of these cards that I won a lot of games of Magic, whether it be in the cube or or whatever, because people would just run it out there on turn one, and then turn two, level it up twice, and try to get in there for three. You know. That's that's just not the right play. Like you need to, unless you don't have anything else to do with that with that mana on turns one and two, that's not what you want to be doing. That just opens yourself up to being able to be blown out tempo wise by a single card. Don't let your opponents. Don't give your opponents that opportunity. Use your mana wisely. Use it where you're supposed to be using it for. I mean, like I said, if, if that's your only play, then by all means, go ahead and do it. Or if you can successfully reason why that would be doing it, okay, this is post-cyborg. The only thing I have in my hand is two more students of warfare, so I don't want to throw another one out there and open myself up to pyroclasm. Like, if you can come up with a significant line of reasoning, why not to do that? That's fine. But the, the beauty in a lot of the levelers is that it turns their cards that have use both in the early game and in the late game have a more powerful effect. They're basically scalable creatures. They're like X spell creatures. Yeah, you know I'm I'm fine. A two two for two is fine in red, and you're just getting it up to four mana. And you know again we're not you know when I'm playing it I'm not pulling going all in unless I have to. It's like you know eventually it'll get to a four four, and it'll get in there, and it'll probably die. Like it, I can't remember any times when it became an eight eight, but I'm not going to evaluate it. Like oh, I've done it, gonna... done it in standard quite a bit. Nice. Yeah, and it's just like. Big giant flyer, they don't have the removal spell, they're dead. Because, yeah, you know, they, they're using all their spells for everything else that you have. You know, they have to kill your plated geopedes and your, you know, whatever else. And then you're finally like, oh, by the way, this guy, make him a 4-4 right away to get him out of bolt range before you untap. And then, uh, well, I hope you draw something because I'm attacking you for 10 the next turn. And if they don't have anything, well, you just get them sometimes. Yeah, precisely. And it's another kind of, like, the thing you were talking about earlier, and I think that's a good point to kind of go a little bit on, is sometimes when people might misevaluate a card, they might just be playing it wrong. Like, if they're playing Wild Dogs in, like, a mid-range or control deck, and they're like, hey, this card switched sides. Oh, oh my God, why am I, this card sucks. Well, don't play it in mid-range or control. Like, if you're complaining that you're taking too much damage from Bob because it's going, like, reveal 5, reveal 6, 
reveal land. Reveal... Yeah, don't play it in your big giant mana control decks. Yeah, exactly. It's like that's playing it wrong. Like, you know, that's not the card's fault of being bad. That's just that's not the deck for it. And well, it's the same I, thing, like wild yep. dogs, play it in aggro, don't play it in control. Exactly. Just play it's sometimes if, you know, you're having experience with a card and it's not performing or you know people have said stuff about it and it's not performing right it part i'm not gonna auto say it's because you're doing it wrong but sometimes it might be that way sure and i and i think the best thing to do is ask other people uh how how do you how do you usually play this card how does this card usually work out for you because something's not working right and it could be you know it could be a variety of things maybe the other person who suggested it isn't quite playing it right Maybe people aren't playing correctly against it, or maybe the card just works differently because what you didn't realize is they have a tribal cube, or they have, you know, their playgroup doesn't like spells that cost less than four mana. You know what I mean? Like it, it could be any number of things. And, and yeah. I, but I, but I think a, a very good thing to remember in all this card evaluation stuff is there, there's a, a, a thing that we like to talk about, or I should say, gets brought up, and that's the whole terminate test. I believe we've even mentioned it before on this. Uh, broadcast or the vindicate test or whatever you want to call it. And basically, it works for things besides creatures. Basically, if you're spending a bunch of mana, you're spending mana, you just have to look at what kind of return you're getting on your mana investment. And, and yeah. you know, if, if you're getting a, you know, multiple effects that are all very good and all undercosted, then yeah, that's something that's good. If you're, if it, you know, if you have to wait, if you're paying eight mana and all you get is a four four that, you know, every once in a while might do something cool. Like, yeah, you know, you got, you got to kind of look at things a little more. I don't, I don't think that terminate test is, is exactly uh, applicable to creatures only. I think you can look at it on, on pretty much everything, you yeah, know, when, there, even, you know, things like counter spells, like how much, how much mana do you want to be paying for a counter spell? How much, you know, mana do you want to be paying for a pump spell? You know, just kind of look at what you're paying and what you're getting. It's kind of like what you do in the store every day. Yeah, when you pointed it out to me, the whole terminate for things other creatures, it was like one of those eureka moments. Like, oh my god, that that that's perfect. That makes so much sense. And that's something people just don't think of in general. Like, debtors knell, I think, is a perfect example. People get the, uh, you know, the dream scenario of you know being able to recur everything or whatever. But just looking at a, like, especially, I think it's important for finishers more than maybe just like four drops or whatever. But especially important for finishers because you're looking for those big effects to win you the game, and you're putting right. a lot of investment. Like, you know, it's not as important on like a four drop, like Hero of Blood Ridge or Hero of a uh, White Hold. The White, yeah, Blade Hold. It dies to terminate. That's fine. It's a four drop. You're not putting all your eggs in that basket. But you know, something like yeah, Debtor's Knell or a uh, Obelisk of Alara or uh, some other overcosted EDH card or something, just. What kind of investment are you getting? And again, just looking at the overall range, like how how much effect overall are you getting from this card? Like if it's just if it isn't if the overall effect isn't worth it, it's not worth it in your cube. And again, right. like I said, it's like when you go to a store and you make decisions. Like you know, life is all about making decisions on how much bang you're going to get for the buck, kind of thing. And exactly it's no right. Exception no. In cube. All right. Personally, I like debtors now because the card. The card does turn. The, the card does win games by itself. It obviously doesn't do anything. It's got to survive a turn cycle. But I can think of very few examples where uh, my opponents or myself have played that card and had it not win the game for you. 
So, you know, you have to make evaluations based on, on what you're doing. I know it's a big investment, but you know what? In my testing, it's, it's paid off. It's yeah. paid off almost every single time while I'm actually thinking about and, and most likely will be taking Obelisk of Alara out of my cube. While it is very good at times, I just feel like it, it requires way too much legwork after the fact to get your value for all the mana that you spend. Like yeah. a lot of times for debtors now, that is one upkeep and I'm pretty close to even on my mana investment while I feel like with Obelisk, it's taking multiple activations, you know, which cost two mana each time in order to get close to value for the mana that I've spent. And that, and the thing about debtors now kind of makes me think of a point, like if you're using, like, I remember some people when they were talking about the card was like, debtors now essentially is two, it gives creature, two creatures suspend counters and like it gives them, you know, it, I forget the example. It wasn't a very good analogy. It was like, you know, give it suspend counters and if you're using other cards for analogies, like, I usually try to think outside the box, cliche as it is, like Wormfang Drake, Bone Horde, things like that, where you think outside of the box and think of, you know, trying to use other cards as analogs. But they have to be relevant. Other times it's just, if you don't, it's just bad. Sure. And I think, like, stuff like looking at, like, the Terminate test, things like that, is that it's very important when you're looking at cards that there should be a cap on. Like, you should only have a certain amount, like, mass removal, blue finishers, or really any finishers where a card can be great, you know, like Consecrate Sphinx. I think it's a great card. It's just not good. I don't, at least my personal opinion is, I just don't think it's good enough to beat out, like, you know, Frost Titan, Sphinx of Jawar Isle, Kaiga, Battlesphere, Maloquil Engine. Yeah, it's not, it can't crack that. It's not that, it's not good enough. And there's only room for so many co- high-cost finishers. It's like, like when I talk to limited resources, it's like, you know, it's like the Lord of the Rings movies, like the last Lord of the Rings movie. You can't have, like, 50 endings. You, uh-huh. only need, you only need one or two finishers. You don't need, like, ten. Otherwise, you're just doing a disservice. And I think definitely this is, like, a good, really good example is when you're looking at multicolor cards, and granted, it really isn't super relevant with Mirrored and Besiege because there was two multicolor cards, is looking at multicolor and looking at what the color pair like, its strengths and its weaknesses and what it needs. Like, on Twitter, somebody was asking, what should I use, Glissa, the new Glissa, or Nath? And I was like, Glissa, for sure. Because while Nath may be nice against control or whatever, you have to understand that green has a ton of great green five drops already. It has, you know, Stomp Power, Genesis, Thornling, North Tree, like, all of them. And then even the ones in black, Obnix, Shriekmaw, all of these totally outclass Nath. And for playing a card that's more restrictive on mana, like, why would you want to play that? It makes it doesn't fit the combination very well. And granted, Glissa, it's not going to recur artifacts a lot of the time, but a green should be able to deal with the mana cost fine. And even if you play it on turn four or whatever, that's fine too. It's just looking at the overall package. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the thing is, you know, just a bear in combat too. I mean, First Strike and Death Touch, especially, just even before the rules changes, those two things together are just make it impossible to to fight with in combat. Yeah, just so make good it impossible. Luck. You need protection or you're dead, essentially. Right. Yeah, this card is going to pretty much own you if you try to interact with it inside of combat. Yeah, like I think it's probably the sixth best green-black card. I'm like, I really want to put it in, but I just I just don't have the room for it. And that's yeah, one of the things. For me, I'm I just... think it's seven. 
I, I couldn't tell you what the other six are. We were kind of running out of time here a little bit, so yeah. I don't, I don't want to, you know, go through all that. But I, th- I got to tell you, it's close. It's yeah. close, and it, it's making me think about it. Well, why don't we? You know what? We've talked all this on how you evaluate cards, and why don't we? Why don't we wrap it up with an example? Why don't yeah, we go ahead and pick a card, or you know, have a card from the new set, and and kind of apply what we've talked about? Now, an example that I was thinking of was uh, the Red Hero, aka Hero of Oxid Ridge. Oh, okay, that's the the uh, the hasty one, right? Yeah, hasty battle cry, haste haste battle cry stuff that can't block all that all that goodness. And that was a card I was kind of kind of slipped under the radar. I think it did for you also. Yeah, I looked at it and I was like, okay, well that's a card. And they really didn't really didn't think about it until going back and and thinking, okay, well you know what? Let's go. You know, let me use my you know card evaluation skills that I've learned, and like let's look at the positives and look at the negatives. And, and it and it the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, man, I think this card will work really well. Uh, I think some of the positives, obviously, it's got a good power to mana ratio. You're getting four power for four mana. I think uh, haste is very important. It fits in very well with what red wants to do. And I think the the battle cry not only works well in red, but I I think it works really well with haste, too. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just like haste, and it's like they don't see it coming, and you're just attacking with your horde that has battle cry is really nice. Well, yeah, because, you know, at the pre-release, I was playing the the 2-2 guy. I also had the 4-4 uh, the, the guy for 5 mana. And, like, every time I played this card, this battle cry card, I wanted to play my card and then attack with my guys, but I'm like, I don't get the bonus yet. Yeah. I really get the bonus to turn up the turn I play this card, and that's exactly what the hero does. It gives you that bonus right away. Not to mention the triggered ability. I mean, the kind of decks that, you know, may give red decks the most fits are the ones with 0-4 walls, with 1-3s, with big guys like this. And that triggered ability just completely knocks that out of the park. Yeah, like you know, nice how many wall times in your right red there. deck are you like, you know, you might be on the you might be on the draw and you're like turn one, you know, jackal pop type card, and they're like turn two wall of omens. Good luck to you, sir. Mm-hmm. You know, and you wind up having to spend all this extra time and and resources trying to kill it. This take completely takes that away. Absolutely. Yeah, like, and that's kind of like a nice little gravy thing as well. Like even four power four mana haste and battle cry is really nice, but the trigger thing is nice too. Like yeah, like nice wall of denial there. Nice. Yeah, drive. wall of denial is just such a nightmare card for aggressive decks. Yeah. And I oof. I, I wow. I, I didn't even consider wall of denial. Yeah, yeah. Just you know, it's like a a removal spell that removes your best creature every turn. Yeah, it's essentially maze of myth. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Especially since red decks are not going to be playing the mass removal. Like, they're not going to be playing Star Storm. Or like you have the Star Storm for eight to get rid of that guy. Yeah, and it kills your own dudes as well. <laughs> it's like... Right, like what nice, uh, I, I can't think of a single red creature that's going to have more than eight toughness, you know. But geez, like, if you have all that mana, you should just be killing them anyway. Exactly. And so so all these positive things, so pretty well, as far as the negatives, two toughness. toughness? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, it's it seems like this is a card and you know also thinking about what as far as what red does i think red four drops i think this fits well into what red four drops want to be um you don't want to p- cast your format and then have to wait for something you want to be able to attack with it right away um it gives bo- you know it gives bonuses to other things even though even the worst like the worst case scenario i'm spending four mana 
I said, no other creatures in play. I'm spending four mana for a four power haster. Yeah. You know what? I, I think that's all right. I, I think, you know, it's to the point where, uh, you know, a lot of people play, uh, Vengevine just because it's a four power haster for yeah, four. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, that's what I they, thought when it was spoiled. I'm like, four power for haste? And I think people were iffy on putting that in their cubes. They were like, oh, it's not going to be that good. I'm like, it's four power of haste for four mana. And, you know, if you sandbag some, like, one drops or whatever, you can do it. But even if you don't get it back from the grave, whatever. Four power of haste for four, great. Right. And, you know, so worst case scenario, not that bad. Best best case scenario, you're like one drop, two drop, they play a wall. You're like three drop, maybe they play another wall. You're like this guy, thank you for a million, nice walls, idiot. Yeah, exactly. It, it seems to me that the the needle is more towards full than or awesome than towards empty or awful. So yeah, th- this even, part it seems like a, a a pretty natural fit for the cube. Yeah, even if like they have like a dragon that can block it, like that's still fine. You don't have to charge into it, or if they have a two two. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to just ram it in there, you know, just because. Well, this guy yeah. has haste. I should attack with it. Like, well, you know, no, maybe you want to wait a turn. Because you have a burn spell in your hand and give yourself a chance to remove a blocker first. You know, I, I think that's a, one of those mental shortcuts we were talking about earlier. Look at card. Card has haste. AKA must attack each turn if able. No, yeah. <laughs> don't have to attack with the card if it's, you know, if it's not advantageous to you. That's, yeah. you know, that's the way it works. And exactly. It's like, and yeah, that's just playing the card correctly kind of thing. Yeah, just waiting another turn so you can flash back a firebolt. Even if they do have a dragon to block, sometimes, and you have to attack just to get damage through, sometimes that's fine. Like if you're a Jackal Pups and your knight, Blood Knights and your, you know, Chimeric Idols or whatever are going to get through, that's fine. Just look overall, you know, just look overall at the thing. Now, sure, I we, mean, maybe you just want to cast it too because you have a bunch of two power guys. If they have a bunch of three toughness guys, you know what, maybe you do want to attack with it because at least you're wrathing their board and you're going to be left with creatures afterwards. You know, so it, you have to evaluate it when you to make the right play instead of making that mental shortcut. Exactly. Now, speaking of mental shortcuts, we don't want you all to think like, oh, use this card because they say it's good. Use this card because they say – or don't use this card because they say it's bad. This is all about teaching you lessons to do this on your own. You know, if you're going through Gatherer looking for cards and you see a card that looks interesting or whatever, we want – this podcast is all about giving you those tools. And in a future episode – you know, I don't know when we're going to do it exactly, but we're going to talk about what to take out from your cube. Because it's pretty, you know, being able to identify a good cube card is one thing. It's if you have a cube, assuming, like figuring out what to take out is like the much harder part, I think. Yeah, one of the hardest things in Magic. Uh, sideboarding, it is really easy to sideboard cards in. It is super hard to sideboard cards out because sometimes it's really obvious and sometimes not so much, you know. I know I should be bringing this pro red creature in against the mono red deck, but what cards do I what card do I need to replace it with? Which card that might not be super obvious do I need to replace? Precisely, and that's the big thing. Even like it took me it took me like two seconds to figure out that Black Sun Zenith was good. It took me a lot longer to figure out what to take out, and we're gonna try to cover that too. Give you those tools to figure out what to take out and look at your cube holistically and all that stuff that I always blab on about. Yep. Now, and when um, it comes down to it, you guys, you know, if if there's ever a doubt about a card, proxy it up, 
stick it in your cube, trade somebody for it, put it in there, and play the card. That's the best way it's going to tell you one way or the other. Play the card. There's only so much you can do in your brain. And as we all know, we're none of us have perfect brains. Yeah, get the like card I, in the cube, get the card in the deck, play it, see how it is. I'll give you a perfect example. Like Sulfuric Vortex was a card. You know, I heard it was good from a friend. And I was like, this card, uh, whatever. And I tried it. Villain, you know, I played uh, Vortex. Villain responds with Vendillion Click. I forget what it takes out, whatever. And then it just kills me in the race. And then after that, I was like, oh, guess this card isn't very good. But you know what? That was a terrible sample size. That was one. Right. One sample size, and that's it. And that's, you can't evaluate a whole thing based on one sample size. It's like, you know, going to a restaurant and, you know, figuring out that the place sucks because you, your waiter was mean to you or something. You know, just, you have to look, you have to give yourself a much bigger sample size and putting it in your cube, trying it out, proxying it. Even if you had to do the whole Sharpie on a back of a card, you know, whatever. It gives you experience. And that's, yep. per, that's essential. And, and if you need to, guys, you can even, you know, don't, don't be embarrassed about planting the card in your packs, too. If yeah, you I've need done to that get, plenty of times. If you need to get, uh, information on it, count out everybody's packs, get that card, you know, make sure that card is in somebody's pack. So that way someone gets some information. And talk to them. Make sure they, you know, if someone who drafted it and they're playing it, make sure, make sure you talk to them afterwards. Hey, how did this card play? Hey, how, when was it good? When was it bad? Mm-hmm. And that's what I did with Jace, when, Jace uh, 2.0 when it came out. I made sure it was in the packs, shuffled it up. Someone drafted essentially Psychotog and just bashed face. And I was like, how is, how is it, Jace? And he's like, retarded. Like, I essentially went untap, upkeep, draw, Jace, brainstorm. It was ridiculous. I was like, wow. I'm so. And uh card's pretty good. Yeah. Not gonna lie. Not gonna That's lie. Right. <laughs> now well, uh hey, you know we've, uh, we've did you gone want to talk on about we were gonna do uh a little kind of bonus thing too for our for the, yeah. for the listeners, right? Yeah, uh limited resources, this uh the podcast that I keep you know gushing about because it's awesome. It does a thing called a crack a pack where they take a pack, you know, a physical pack of magic cards, cracks it open, uh describes the cards that are in there, you know, just reads them off, you know, just like here's a Origin Spellbomb, blah, blah, blah. And then talks about what card they would pick one, pick pick one, pack one out of it. And we're going to do something similar using cube packs. And, you know, we're going to, you know, wing it, you know, just like, you know, like whose cube it's going to be kind of thing. Even then, I don't know how huge, you know, a factor that's going to be. But essentially, you know, opening a cube pack, cracking it, and what would I, you know, what would I first pick and what Anthony would first pick. Yep, we're going to do that. It's going to be a little a little bonus segment. It's going to be independent of this uh broad of this podcast. So uh take a look for it on uh, MTG Cast. It'll be a little like 0.5 or 0.25 or whatever it might be. So uh take a listen for that. Let us know what you think about it. And uh I think that's about I think that's about all we have for today. I was about to say yeah, we've definitely gone into the deep about card evaluation. I think is I think it went really well. Now um is there something else you wanted to add? All I want to say is rock over London, rock on Chicago. Scars of Mirrodin, the corrosion begins. Out. See you all next week.